I am convinced that there's no reason I shouldn't say anything I want to to anyone I want. Was that argument just a verbal argument? No, that was a pushing and shoving argument. See the story of the hair two different ways. One way I drag her out of the house, buy her hair. The other way I grab her hair and a big chunk comes out. Either one is close enough. The fugitive argument was advanced by Mr. Durst himself. It was repeatedly stated that he went to Galveston because it was, quote, the farthest point I could get away from New York City. Would having had the body left in the position where Morris was shot have aided in the reconstruction of the crime scene? Oh, without question. Respectfully, Judge, where do you take the jump that Morris Black is a witness? To what? And they can present that to prove the special circumstance of killing witnesses because of a modus operandi. It's a common scheme and plan to remove witnesses. And this made me feel bad about the movie, Andrew. I mean, the idea that I could kill Igor, I don't like. Welcome back to Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst. I'm your host, Carrie Antholis, and I'm joined by my co-host, Brittany Bookbinder. As the prosecution nears the end of their case against Robert Durst, they have begun presenting evidence that demonstrates how, in essence, Robert Durst is his own worst enemy. In the last several weeks, the prosecution has presented statements that Durst has made in prior testimony, recorded phone calls, and interviews for various forms of media, including the documentary series The Jinx and his commentary on the thinly fictionalized film All Good Things. In presenting this evidence, the prosecution intends to show that Robert Durst's on-the-record statements have locked him into a narrative that his defense team will have to contort their case around. In this episode, we'll examine how Durst's statements to the media and in prior testimony have backed him into a corner, and how and why his narrative has changed over time. That's coming up after the break. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. When asked why he talks openly about the allegations against him, Robert Durst once told reporter Charles Bagley, I am convinced that there's no reason I shouldn't say anything I want to, to anyone I want. It's so long ago, some DA would have to commence a major budget-busting investigation. I don't see that happening. That was actor David Kelsey reenacting Durst's comments to Charles Bagley from 2015. In essence, Durst believes that without the time, money, or political will, no one would bother to piece together and fact-check the various stories he's told over the years. And, for a very long time, 
he was right. But then, in 2013, Los Angeles Deputy DA John Lewin entered the picture. Beginning about eight years ago, Lewin and his team of prosecutors and investigators patiently began picking up the breadcrumbs that Durst has left behind for the past 40 years. We have come to the part of the trial where the prosecution is feeding each of these breadcrumbs to the jury, just as Robert Durst stands on the precipice of taking the witness stand in his own defense. So what are these breadcrumbs? What are the key pieces of self-incriminating information that Robert Durst has left on his path? Well, there are actually multiple breadcrumbs related to all three of Durst's alleged murders. First, there's the night of Kathy's disappearance. The story that Bob Durst related regarding Sunday night, January 31st, was the following. He said Kathy returned from Gilberta's party. He said they had a sandwich. Durst put Kathy on a train back to New York City. He then said he visited his neighbors, that's going to be the mayors, and he wasn't doing anything nefarious. He said he spoke with Kathy by phone between 11 and 11.15 p.m. She seemed fine. She was watching TV in their Riverside Drive penthouse. That's Deputy DA John Lewin in his original opening statement last year. As we reported in Season 1, Durst's own statements have been the backbone of the prosecution's case against him and his comments to filmmakers Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, which will officially be entered into evidence this week, have been especially problematic for the defense. As Lewin pointed out during his opening statement... Durst actually admitted that they had a violent argument that night. Here is what Robert Durst initially told Andrew Jarecki about the night Kathy disappeared. So the night that she disappeared, that, uh, that Sunday night, or the last night that you saw her, um, I think, uh, you know, just take me through what you remember happening that night. He gets back to his liberties, maybe seven or whatever, angrily loaded, uh, walks around the house, Leaks up and announcing that she wants to go to the city. I said, You can go to the city if you want, but you, you, you can't drive, and I'm not going to go to the city. She couldn't drive because of her condition. She was, you drive any kind, her condition didn't bother me at all. We only had one car, we just had the Mercedes up there. So she was, I wasn't going to go back uh, Sunday night. The car and me and the dog were staying in South Sand. You can't take the dog to the channel Sunday night anyway. So if she wants to go to the city, she can take the train. And she says, no, I'm taking the car. And I went and got the keys out of the car and told her that she's not taking the car because I'm not giving her the keys. Was that argument just a verbal argument? You know, that was a pushing and shoving argument. In addition to Durst's apparent admissions of physically and emotionally abusing his wife on the night of her disappearance, Durst admitted to the makers of the jinx that he lied to investigators about his actions that night. Now, in 2010, the evidence is going to show that one of the big shocking details that emerged from the Jarecki and Smurling interviews is that for the first time ever, Durst is going to casually admit that the story about going back to the neighbor's house was a complete fabrication. And he's going to explain why it was he said that. And if you listen to his explanation, you're going to understand who Bob Durst is. Lewin then played a clip of that interview. And um, then we went to the mayor's. 
Yeah, that's what I told the police. I was hoping that would just make everything go away. I didn't go to the mayor's. I took her to the train station and went home and went to sleep. And why, why would that have made everything go away? Well, I wanted the mayors. They wanted to hear, what did you do? So I told them I did that. I, I just never got through my mind. It was like a negotiation. You tell somebody something, well, that's it. Uh, they, they don't go back there. They, they don't look for motive. Why is he telling me this kind of thing? I thought that would get them to leave me alone, accept the missing person, right back. As we reported earlier this season, Bill Mayer and his then-wife Ruth Mayer deny seeing Robert Durst that night. In addition to Durst's statements regarding his activities on the night of Kathy's disappearance, the prosecutors presented his statements about the state of his marriage prior to the disappearance. Last week, the prosecution played for the jury All Good Things, a thinly fictionalized movie by Andrew Jarecki and Mark Smerling, based heavily on Robert Durst's life. Now, in advance of the movie's release, Bob Durst obtained a screenplay, a copy of the movie. And after reading the script, Durst attempted to contact Andrew Jarecki by phone. Andrew Jarecki's going to testify. He's going to tell you that he was told that Bob Durst had reached out to the head of Magnolia Pictures, who was making the movie with Andrew Jarecki, saying, um, this is Bob Durst, and I need to talk to Andrew Jarecki. Um, the head of Magnolia Pictures did not believe it was Bob Durst. thought it was a prank. thought it was Andrew Jarecki imitating Bob Durst. But it turns out it was. It absolutely was. Bob Durst reaching out. He had gotten a hold of the script. He had read it. And he liked it. In his opening statement, John Lewin explained how Durst was eager to record the DVD commentary of All Good Things, as well as the interviews with Jarecki that would later become the jinx, even though his lawyers advised him against it. Those lawyers told him, do not do the interviews. Don't do it. Only bad can happen. But the evidence is going to show that Bob Durst loves media attention. When he's in jail and he's talking to his friends, he's asking, what are they saying about me? Send me the news articles. What reporters are covering it? And so that was going to show that kind of like a moth to light, Bob Durst ends up being attracted to this idea. All Good Things dramatizes many of the events that are critical in this case. Over the course of the film, Ryan Gosling's character who is acknowledged by all parties to be a thinly-veiled fictionalization of Robert Durst, is responsible either directly or indirectly for the deaths of thinly-veiled characters based on Kathy Durst, Susan Berman, Morris Black, and Durst's dog, Igor. Lewin explained to the jury what they could expect from the DVD commentary on the film. The movie is going to be shown to you, not because the movie itself is evidence, but because when Mr. Durst sees this movie, which depicts him as a triple murderer, he's going to adopt it. He's going to say, yeah, that's accurate. He's going to say, I didn't think you did a hatchet job. This week, the prosecution presents as evidence to the jury sections of Durst's DVD commentary, as they promised they would in their opening statement. In his remarks, Durst took issue with only one element of the movie. 
And this made me feel bad about the movie, Andrew. I mean, yes. the idea that I could kill Igor, I don't like. According to the prosecution, this comment, Durst's only significant criticism of the film, represents a tacit admission that the other crimes committed over the course of the movie by the Durst-like character, namely the killing of three human beings, were essentially depicted accurately. Also, in a moment that made a particularly visceral impact on trial observers, the prosecution played Durst's commentary of his character's physical abuse of his wife during a dinner party with her family. In the scene, the Durst character is so enraged that his wife won't leave the party that he grabs her by the hair and pulls her out of the house. Here is the DVD commentary by Robert Durst that was played for the jury. After a number of years before I would go to her family's house for a function, I would insist that uh, we agree on how long we're going to stay. Two hours, three hours, four hours, we would always do a negotiation. When the time was up, I was ready to leave. Seeing the story about the hair two different ways. One way, I drag her out of the house by her hair. The other way, I grab her hair and a big chunk comes out. Either one is close enough. The next set of breadcrumbs come from Robert Durst's testimony in his 2003 trial for the murder of Morris Black. Durst was acquitted of murder in the trial based upon his defense team's assertion that Black's killing was either self-defense or an accident. The following is a recreation of the direct examination from Durst's Galveston trial. His testimony is read by David Kelsey, and the questions from his lawyer, Dick DeGarren, are read by Kurt Cornelius. Here, Durst describes coming home to find Morris Black watching TV in his apartment and the scuffle that ensued. I thought Morris was angry, and what I immediately thought about was the fact that I had never gone back to get the gun that was still in the boiler compartment of the stove. So what did you do? You're at the door. What did you do? I went directly to the oven. And that's where you left the gun? Down in the boiler compartment. In the back of the boiler compartment. As you got up, seeing that the gun was not in the broiler, as you got up and looked toward Morris, what did you see? Morris had swiveled the chair halfway toward me and was looking at me. Looking at me. Did you see what Morris did with his hands? Yes. As soon as my head got up to about here, he reached forward onto the table and he reached underneath his yellow jacket that had been sitting on the table. And I kept saying, Morris, where's the gun? Give me the gun. Give me the gun. And I got up and... What did Morris do as you got up? Turned toward me with a gun. Where was he pointing the gun? Before he can point the gun at me, I grabbed the barrel of the gun over his hand. Like, like that. Did Morris stand up? He was standing up. He was up at the time I got to touch him like this. And then what happened? We fell back like that onto the floor. Morris's foot caught on the chair leg, which had happened to me numerous, numerous times when I was sitting at the table and would turn around to go to the kitchen. Did you fall hard? Yes, sir. And what hit? What part of your body hit first? My left elbow. Your left elbow? Yeah, right here. And where was your right hand as you fell? 
My right hand was in the same place it had been from the beginning, on the barrel of the gun, on top of his hand. I went to pull the gun, and the gun didn't move. He moved, and the two of us fell back like that. As you hit the ground, or the floor, and as your elbow hit, what happened? The gun went off. Bam. Like that? Like that. Based on Robert Durst's description of events, the defense team put together an animated recreation of the scene. The animation, which was likely considered sleek and high-tech in 2003, was shown to the jury in Galveston and was recently shown to the jury in Durst's Los Angeles trial. The short video depicts Robert Durst moving from the kitchen to the living room as Morris Black turns toward him holding the gun. They wrestle for control. Morris falls back. The gun goes off. Blood sprays on the wall behind him. Since the crime scene was disrupted when Robert Durst dismembered and disposed of Morris Black's body, it was challenging for Galveston prosecutors to refute the version of events presented by the defense. However, they used what evidence remained, namely blood spatter, to reconstruct the scene. Last week, the prosecution called the same crime scene reconstructionist who testified in Galveston nearly 20 years ago. Tom Bevel was questioned by Deputy DA Ethan Milius. Could Durst have been lying between Morris and the wall at the time of the shooting? No. Based on the evidence that you've seen, could Durst be uh, laying on the ground on the opposite side of Morris at the time of the shooting? With where I am placing the uh, head based upon those two elongated stains, he would have had to have been coming around the corner of the wall in order to uh, get a shot, which would also block the area where his arm or gun is from the edge of the uh, left door frame which is the area where reportedly he's laying on the ground. Is the evidence consistent with Durst standing above Morris while Morris is laying on the ground and firing the weapon? That is certainly uh, consistent as a viable possibility, yes, sir. Would having had the body left in the position where Morris was shot have aided in the reconstruction of the crime scene? Oh, without question. Would having had the head aided in reconstruction of the crime scene? Yes. In presenting this testimony, the prosecution is offering evidence that Durst lied about how he shot Morris Black and that the events depicted in the animated reenactment present a false narrative intended to cover up the fact that Robert Durst advanced around the corner of the apartment, surprising Morris Black, and shot him deliberately. The defense objected to the prosecution relitigating what happened in Galveston. Your Honor, earlier today we had a uh, sidebar discussion regarding the uh, blood spatter witness, and we renewed our objection to the use of information about the trial in Galveston, and in this instance the state's attempt to suggest that uh, the self-defense verdict was improper and that Mr. Durst had actually done something different than was determined in Galveston. You're saying self-defense verdict, but it was a not guilty verdict. Right, for self-defense. <clears throat> I think uh, the, uh, was an accident advanced also and self-defense? Yes. Yes, Your Honor. Thank you. Just to be clear. Go ahead. Thank you. I appreciate it. So um, we had indicated to the court that the theory that the state has professed for putting this forward was somehow that Morris Black 
uh, knew who Mr. Durst was and uh, thought that uh, Mr. Durst thought he was a threat to reveal to him, to somebody, that he was Mr. Durst and he was on the run. Uh, Mr. Durst had not been charged with an offense at that time, so the fugitive argument didn't seem to us to be very strong. We don't believe there's a nexus to their argument that somehow uh, Mr. Durst was in fear of some disclosure uh, by Mr. Black. The prosecution responded by bringing up the fact that Robert Durst's own words provided the basis for their narrative. Very briefly in response, to number one, the fugitive argument was advanced by Mr. Durst himself, who has repeatedly stated that he went to Galveston because it was, quote, the farthest point I could get away from New York City because he was concerned about being charged in the case. That's not our theory alone. That's Mr. Durst's theory. Number two, the court made its ruling. Counsel seems to believe that somehow we are stuck with the verdict from Galveston. He's right about one thing. We're going to prove in this case that Bob Durst murdered Morris Black. We're going to prove it by the evidence that we're putting on, the fact that Bob Durst put the head inside of the trash bags, that he retrieved it. It was not a crab. It was not a large sea animal. It was not a shark, and it didn't sink below the ground. We're going to also demonstrate that his version of how the actual incident occurred is not only inconsistent with physical evidence, it's inconsistent with his own expert's testimony relying on the animation. Judge Wyndham then articulated why he's allowing this evidence to be presented to the jury. The people are offering this based upon the idea that, in part, because Mr. Durst knew that uh, Mr. Black knew who he was. So he's a witness to the identity. He's a witness. He knows that Mr. Uh, Mr. Durst is, rather than living a life of uh, luxury somewhere, he's uh, living uh, uh, under an alias in a, in a boarding house in New Orleans. Why, why, anyone would ask, why is somebody doing that? It, it's, it's a curious state of affairs. And you're presuming that Mr. Durst is rational in making his decision that that there must be some evidence that Mr. Black was going to turn him in or Mr. Black was aware of, uh, of the particular charges against him. But there's more to it than that. And I think the key is you, you keep criticizing the people for trying to prove murder. But really, that's something that's been left out of the discussion, something that's important. because. If Mr. Durst disposed of this body, disposed of the head, and in fact killed Mr. Black intentionally, all right, and not beyond a reasonable doubt, that's established. There's a reasonable doubt about this based on the evidence. But to a preponderance, if this was a murder, then what is the motive, right? The obvious question is, why would he kill this man? We, we have heard testimony of them getting along. They're friends. There's no, there's no reason for him to kill. If it's a murder, then the question arises logically, why? What is the motive? It seems to me that the Morris Black killing and the Susan Berman killing, that evidence interrelates, right, to show motive, right? The, the thing they have in common, they're both friends of his who get killed, and they both are potentially witnesses. And that's, that's quite logical. Anybody could, is that true? I, that's a jury's, that's a jury's call. At this point, the defense questioned Judge Wyndham, 
and in a rare moment of heightened emotions, Wyndham fired back. Respectfully, Judge, where do you take the jump that Morris Black is a witness? To what? Okay, I'm sorry. Morris Black is a witness if he can identify Mr. Durst. He's, Period. He's, he's he, fine. I'm he's, sorry. Don't argue with me. I'm, you asked me a question, which you shouldn't do. But I'm going to answer it anyway, okay. Mr. Chesnoff. When I get a chance, I'll respond, Your Honor. Please. All right. Mr. Durst kn knows that Morris Black can identify him. He can testify. Yes. Robert Durst was living across the hallway dressed as a woman and using somebody else's name. He says he's doesn't want to be Robert Durst anymore. He doesn't want to be in New York anymore. That is evidence. That's incriminating. That makes him a witness. Is it the percipient witness? No. It makes him a witness. He could go to the authorities. He could, he could, he could you know, there's, it's possible. He's a risk. He presents a risk to Mr. Durst. That's a logical. Is, is that true by a preponderance? I don't know. The jury will decide that. Right? But is it logical? Sure it is. It's like it's an obvious inference that you can draw from a person living under those circumstances. Uh, and so so uh, it, it, and, and you leave that out. But but but, but it, it, there is that similarity to the Berman case where she there's no reason for him to kill her. But if he did kill her, here's the question. Is the special circumstance true if he did kill her? and did without any explanation, for some reason, murder Morris Black, not just discarded the body parts because no one would ever believe him, but discarded the body parts to cover up a murder. That's the people's theory. Is that right? That's not my job. Is that a logical argument? Sure it is. Sure it is. And they, and, and they can present that to prove the special circumstance of killing witnesses because of the modus operandi. It's a common scheme and plan to remove witnesses. What about the scores of other people in Galveston that knew he was Robert Durst at the same time, Your Honor? He didn't con he concealed his identity when he first arrived, and thereafter he operated under his name. He had checks. He went to the library. He bought. He, people knew that he was Robert Durst. Yeah, but you say that to the jury. Yeah, of course. Well, yeah, that, yeah, but, you, you tell them. But, but, that, but that, that, I got to exclude the evidence because because there's another explanation. If they're equal, if they're equal explanations, the, the, the jury, just, listen, the jury must adopt that version favorable to the defendant. They honest. must adopt the version that points to innocence. That's their job. But are the people allowed to present a, an influence that by a preponderance could be so? Yes. Thus the evidence from Tom Bevel and its implication that Robert Durst's version of events were physically impossible was allowed to stand. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. The next set of self-incriminating breadcrumbs left by Robert Durst relate to his whereabouts on the night that Susan Berman was murdered. 
As we have previously reported, Robert Durst claimed for many years that he was not in Los Angeles at the time of Susan Berman's murder and did not write the so-called cadaver note. Now, what has Bob Durst's position been over the years on whether he wrote the cadaver note? What has his position been? 2010, talking to Jarecki and Smerling. Well, to begin with, you didn't write the, write the cadaver note, is that what I you're saying? I didn't write the cadaver note. Um, can you think of a reason why somebody might write a note like that? I can't imagine. Can't imagine. 2012 with Jarecki. So, I guess the question is, did you write the cadaver note? No, I didn't write the cadaver note. 2015, when he was interviewed in the New Orleans jail, the issue is going to be, there's kind of two choices that you have, two ways you could, you could go. You could say, listen, I went down there. And you would have to explain why you went down there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I, I saw that and the, the, the people's comments and, 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 and the stuff like that. When you Somebody could have gone into the house and, and saw that Susan was lying there. Right, right. No, 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 what I'm telling you is, I'm, I'm just saying, that did not happen. You agree, you did not just find Susan's body and somebody else killed her. You did not find Susan's body. Durst has also made clear, absolutely, and without reservation, that whoever wrote the cadaver note is, in fact, the person who murdered Susan Berman. You're writing a note to the police that only the killer could have written. As you sit here today, you agree that whoever wrote that letter, they killed Susan. Agree? You see, I don't know that. I mean, maybe there were two people who killed Susan. Okay. It doesn't have to be one person. There could be two people. One, pe one person could go into the house to shoot Susan, and the other person could be the driver. Oh, oh, oh okay. No, let me, let me, this is what I mean. Whether the person was the shooter or the driver, whoever wrote the note was a part of killing her. Yes. You, you agree, right? Yes. No question, right? Whoever wrote that note had to be involved in Susan's death. Okay. Robert Durst maintained this version of events until he was forced to change his story. As we've reported, this change came after Durst's friend Emily Altman testified that he was in Los Angeles at the time that Susan Berman was killed. After many years of adamantly and repeatedly denying that he wrote the cadaver note, saying that only the killer could have written it, on December 24, 2019, Durst stipulated that he wrote the cadaver note. Another significant breadcrumb is, of course, the infamous bathroom audio, or recording of Robert Durst's utterances while entering a bathroom that appeared in the finale of The Jinx. John Lewin played the unedited audio for the jury in his original opening statement and is expected to replay it again this week when the prosecution enters it into evidence. Now, toward the conclusion of the interview, while Durst was still wearing his microphone, he went to use the bathroom. Some place is my bag. I am going to go use the restroom, which is right here. Except that it's locked. Bless me. Oh, someone's in the bathroom. Oh, okay. Or maybe this is the bathroom. Yeah, that's. You're right. This is the bathroom. There it is. You're caught. You're right, of course. 
can't imagine. First thing Bob Durst says is, there it is, you're caught. Then the door closes. Then you hear all the other things, and then you hear very clearly, killed them all, of course. The final set of self-incriminating breadcrumbs were left right at the feet of Deputy DA John Lewin, who, along with a team of Los Angeles prosecutors and investigators, had been collecting them for eight years. During his 2015 in-custody New Orleans interview with John Lewin, Durst made a number of statements that have proven damaging to the defense. Just before the prosecution rests its case later this week, it is expected to enter into evidence a recording of that interview, and we will offer a full report on it at that time. And of course, as the defense team is expected to begin to present their case next week, we are eagerly anticipating Robert Durst taking the stand and we look forward to reporting on his testimony as it happens. For now, we'd like to discuss the latest developments in the trial with reporter Charlie Bagley, who's covering the case for the New York Times and for CrimeStory.com. Charlie, thanks for being with us. Thanks for having me. So this trail of breadcrumbs of self-incrimination left by Robert Durst seems to culminate just before his interview with John Lewin, and on the eve of the premiere of The Jinx, with a comment that he made to you, where he says, I'm convinced that there's no reason I shouldn't say anything I want to, to anyone I want. It's so long ago, some DA would have to commence a major budget-busting investigation. I don't see that happening. Charlie, how did you get that out of him? It seems so prescient now. Well, I had been talking to Bob for a while. I I covered his trespassing trial a year earlier, and that was my first question. Bob, why did you do this? I I knew that his friends, Stuart Altman, had, had told him, don't do it. His lawyers had told him, don't do it. But I think Bob had been itching to tell his story his way. He I think he had a feeling that he had been put portrayed for years as some kind of ghoul, you know, a zombie bloodlusting killer. And I think he wanted, he wanted to talk. He wanted to get his story out there. It strikes me that he sort of runs toward the outlets where he can control his own narrative. Do you think he had any inkling before watching the fifth episode of The Jinx that he had made a mistake? 
Oh, no. You know, in fact, I was speaking with him after every episode. Uh, well, at least the first five. And I wanted to get his reaction to it. So after the third episode, he said, well, they talked about Kathy. They talked about uh, Susan. They talked about Morris Black and Galveston. What more can they talk about? When we hear the commentary to All Good Things, especially the part where he's talking about pulling Kathy by the hair. It's so shocking, you know, and it's so bad. Do you get the sense that he doesn't hear it the way we hear it? You know, he he has this real tone of like, you know how when you're just so sick of being at your in-laws, like you got to do what you got to do. What, what do you think is going through his head when he is justifying or, or glossing over that action? Well, I'm not sure that he's glossing over it. It's how Bob sees the world, I think. And he's trying to explain himself. And he's conceding. I, I was a bad guy. I shouldn't have done that. You know, there's like a resignation. Yes, I was wrong, but I'm not a killer. Uh, yeah, it it's peculiar because when I think it was Susie Giordano was on the stand and John Lewin said, are you aware that Mr. Durst has admitted to abusing his wife? He wanted his lawyers to object to that because even though he acknowledged having pulled his wife by the hair across the room with her family gathered, he doesn't see that as abuse, apparently. Yes, I think you're, you're right. He sees it like he's explaining his actions. Well, he, I think he does understand that people perceive it in a negative light. Well, that's good. <laughs> <laughs> but I'll tell you, when, when that was played earlier in a, in a uh, pretrial hearing, I mean, people were visibly affected by that particular moment, including the judge. I mean, they were kind of taken aback at his casual acknowledgement of what he did. Charlie, what are you looking for when Durst takes the stand next week? What are you going to be paying particular attention to? I want to hear his story of how he came to Susan's house, why he took such a circuitous route, you know, flying from New York to San Francisco, then taking a small plane up to Northern California, where he had just sold a home and get in a car and drive hours and hours down to Los Angeles. And I think we're going to hear a lot about how he perceives the world today. You know, this is Bob's last stand, and I'm interested in what he has to say looking back now. Yeah, what narrative is he going to spin? Well, Charlie, thanks for being with us. We certainly look forward to seeing the prosecution wrap up their case this week and the defense beginning theirs next week. Come back as we follow all of these events and specifically come back for the testimony of Robert Durst. That's coming up next week on Jury Duty, the trial of Robert Durst. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 
You can read Charles Bagley's latest piece on the Durst story, the story of Kathleen McCormick Durst, at crimestory.com. Please remember that you can receive alerts and news breaks on developments in Robert Durst's murder trial, as well as new episodes of Season 2 of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, by subscribing now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Again, if you want to refresh your memory on where the prosecution and defense are heading with their arguments in the trial, go back and re-listen to episodes from Season 1. And head over to crimestory.com for in-depth coverage of the Durst story. Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst, is created and produced by Carrie Antholis. This episode was written and edited by yours truly, Brittany Bookbinder. It was co-produced by Alexis Bartolo and Brittany Bookbinder. Robert Durst's testimony was read by David Kelsey. The Galveston defense, including Dick DeGaren's questioning, was read by Kurt Cornelius. Music was provided by Strike Audio. Thanks for joining us, and we hope you'll come back for the next episode of Jury Duty, The Trial of Robert Durst.